first time I've ever preached with a shovel that I can remember. <clears throat> this is a ceremonial shovel inscribed with these words, South Church, Phase 3, Chapel Edition, May 18, 2014, from the Whelan Dave Co. Corporation. Um, after this service, we encourage you to get your kids first, and then everyone gather on the West Plaza where the chapel edition is going to be built, and we're going to have our ceremonial groundbreaking. We have uh, had Commitment Sunday. Today is Celebration Sunday, and let me give you the results up to this point. Our goal was to raise $1 million this calendar year, and the amount given and pledged, $1.05 million. Praise the Lord for that. Amen. We had a secondary goal of uh, raising a million five in about, what, two and a half years, I think is what we were talking about. And uh, that, the, the pledges, the uh, faith promise offerings up to this point are 1.45 million. So uh, some people haven't given their gifts yet. We'll hit that very soon. In fact, if you have 55 grand in your pocket and you want to take care of that today we would appreciate it no some some of you haven't given yet I know some people don't believe in signing a card and making a, a faith promise offering and but you're committed to giving so there's no way we can track that we'll just watch the money come in and I really believe in the three years that we were talking about or two and a half years talking about trying to raise this goal I really believe we could raise the whole thing by then uh, as God touches hearts and as God reaches into uh, more lives. So that's really my prayer. And I want to praise God and I want to thank you for your wonderful generosity and for this great day of celebration. Let's give the Lord a hand, shall we? <clears throat> I'm usually not into saying things like that, but I just couldn't help myself as far as praising the Lord with clapping. Um, we praise the Lord in a lot of different ways. We praise Him by obedience in our lives. We praise Him as we express His character and His commandments, His word to others. We praise Him as we sing songs of adoration. And today is a day of celebration in which we want to praise the Lord. Let's bow our heads and hearts in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the great and mighty things that you have done in our midst that you are doing all over the world. And this building that we're building is just that. It's a tool. It's a place where kingdom work will take place. There's nothing sacred in the brick, the mortar, the drywall, but there is something very important about what will be accomplished what will be carried on in the midst of those walls and what will transpire from that place to go forth from this church and touch the world. So Lord, we praise you for what you've done and we ask this morning as we contemplate what the scripture says about praise that our hearts will be even more engaged to celebrate your good deeds on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to break ground Thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to rejoice. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your word today, and in hearing and understanding, give us the grace to obey. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, one thing I forgot to mention, we're hoping that the actual groundbreaking uh, will take place June 16. I think that's a Monday, so somewhere in the middle of June. Might be a little before, might be a little after, but that's kind of the target date for the project actually to start. Speaking about building, King David wanted to build a house for God. It was the passion of his heart. David had done a lot in his life that he could look back on with praise. The fact that uh, he as a young boy was faithful in watching the sheep and, you know, defeated the lion and the bear. And David even killed a giant named Goliath. That he led the armies of Israel victorious into battle, that he united the kingdom of Israel together as one, that the, the greatest time of the kingdom seemed to be under his leadership. But David wanted to build a house for God. And as he laid those plans before the Lord, this is what happened. This is 1 Chronicles 28. have it on the screen for you. David called all the people together. He rose to his feet and he said, Listen to me, brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God. And I made plans to build it, David said. He got the architects together and the engineers. He decided who the subcontractors were going to be and how much it would cost. But verse 3 says, The Lord said to me, You are not to build a house for my name, because you are a warrior, and because you have shed blood. He said to me, Solomon, your son is the one who is going to build the house, my house, and build my courts. And the dream of David's heart was dashed in a moment, and how hard that must have been for him to grasp that the the passion of his soul would not be realized. But there was some pleasure in knowing that his son would be raised up. David's at the end of his life and he wants to go out well. He wants to leave a mark. He wants to do all he can to encourage the kingdom of God to go forward. And so with that backdrop, we come to chapter 29. 1 Chronicles chapter 29. If you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to open to this section of God's Word. Page 423, if you want to use a hymn, uh, uh, pew Bible. First Chronicles 29 and verse 1, Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task is great because this palatial structure is not for man, but for the Lord God. With all my resources I have provided for the temple of my God, gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise, stones of various color, and all kinds of fine stones and marble, all of these in large quantities." Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God, over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple. 3,000 talents of gold, the gold of Ophir, 
7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls of the buildings, for the gold work and the silver work, and for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. Now, who is willing to consecrate himself today to the Lord? And let's stop our reading right there. As we come to 1 Chronicles 29, the theme is giving. And it's the giving for this temple project that Solomon is actually going to do, but David is the fundraiser. He wants to do all he can to encourage this work of God to continue. So he gives, first of all, of the royal treasuries. Verse 2. With all my resources I provided for the temple of my God. And he talks about the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the wood, the onyx, the various precious stones. And I think it's in chapter 22 where some of these amounts of these items are actually specified. But these are the royal treasuries. Uh, this is the money that David has access to as king. This is the money that they've gotten, the, the spoils from war, the taxes that people have given, all that's been accumulated in the monarchy. And David has a connection with that. He's able to tap those resources, and that's exactly what he does in amazing amounts. But even more astounding is when he goes to his personal checkbook. That's what he does in verse 3. From my personal treasures, I'm now going to give. If the first was generous, the second indeed is generous and sacrificial. And David does give us the amounts, and they're staggering. Uh, when you calculate the amounts of the talent, it comes out to something like this. 110, 110 tons of gold. 260 tons of silver. The gold alone, one mathematician in our first service figured, was over $3 billion. Staggering, generous amounts. David gives those gifts. And then he says in verse 5, the challenge. Now, who is going to consecrate himself? Who else wants to join in this project and be part of it? And the leaders respond. The leaders give. We read, the scripture tells us, verse 6, leaders of the family, officers of tribes, commanders of thousands and hundreds, the officials in charge of the king's work, they gave willingly. And then their amounts are given, starting in verse 7. 5,000 talents, along with 10,000 derricks of gold. 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, 100,000 talents of iron, along with precious stones. If you calculate all of that, uh, someone says it comes to 188 tons of gold, along with 10,000 special gold coins. Those are the derricks. 375 tons of silver, 675 tons of bronze, 3,750 tons of iron. And the amounts are staggering. We can't get our arms around these amounts. It's like the federal deficit. Only in reverse, being given. This is generous. King David gave generously. Now the leaders are giving generously. 
And added to that, we read in verse 9 that the leaders gave wholeheartedly. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. This sounds a whole lot like 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, doesn't it? When the Macedonians' hearts were touched by grace, they first gave themselves wholeheartedly to the Lord. And then they gave sacrificially and generously and willingly or freely without compulsion because grace had touched their hearts. And they gave in these amazing amounts that God was honored and the work would be accomplished and the result of this type of giving is rejoicing. That's the second thing we see in this text. Rejoicing. You see it twice in verse 9. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. And David the king also rejoiced greatly. His heart was deeply moved. He says in verse 17, And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here in this place have given to you. So it's a time of rejoicing. I think they're rejoicing for two reasons. Number one, because of the generosity of their leaders, but number two, because of the goodness of God. And so their voices are lifted up in praise. And beloved, this is a day for us to celebrate South Church because God has been good to us in amazing ways, and the leaders and the people have been generous. By the way, in verse 17, it indicates that the people also gave, whether they gave later uh, or whether they gave prior to this, I'm not exactly sure, but they also gave. So there was great rejoicing because of the generosity of the people and because of the goodness of God. We stand here at this point in church history able to raise our voices in praise for what God has done in our midst and to celebrate the generos generosity of his people and the goodness of the Lord we serve. I'm looking forward to our groundbreaking service today. But rejoicing leads to something else. It leads to praise. So you've got giving and rejoicing and now praising. For we read in verse 10 that the joy that filled David's soul issued forth in a prayer of praise or a hymn of praise. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly saying, Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom, and you are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and we praise your glorious name. Did you notice that gratitude and adoration are combined in verse 13? They're basically two sides of the same thing. We praise God with a heart filled with gratitude. 
because of all the great things he has done and because of who he is. Actually, if we're going to be a praising people, there are two things that need to be foundational to this spirit of praise. The first is a focus on God. That's where David starts, a focus on God. He says, first of all, God is great. He is worthy to be praised. Verse 10 and 11. He begins to recite the attributes of God to, to establish the reason why he's praising, to show the logic of this whole idea of adoration. Notice in verse 10, he calls God our Father, which is the very name Jesus used when he was here on the earth, and he taught us to use it as well. When you pray, say, our Father. It's a wonderful term that speaks of this filial love, this devotion and commitment. God is everlasting, verse 10. He is great, verse 11, and powerful and glorious, filled with majesty and splendor. And he's the owner of everything. Everything in heaven and everything on the earth belongs to God. And when you began to recite or when you began to review in your heart the attributes of God, your heart will be lifted in praise. Sometimes when a congregation is singing, it's not doing a very good job of it. And a worship leader like Pastor Randy or Pastor Corb might stop the congregation and say, now wait a minute, let's start over. This is really bad. And they often say something like this, sing it as though you mean it. Have you ever heard that? Now let's really put our heart into this. I've got a better idea. When we start singing like that, let's stop the service and for three minutes bow our heads and think about the attributes of God. He's our Father. He's eternal. He's great and powerful. He's majestic and glorious. He's filled with splendor. Begin to think about how great God is and then let's end that prayer meeting and see if our singing's any better. Because once your heart has a view of the greatness of God, you must praise. You must praise. And we have reason to praise God today because of his amazing goodness to us. It's a low view of God that causes us not to thank him and not to praise him. I've shared this quote before, but it's one of my favorite quotes. It comes from A.W. Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy, an excellent book on the attributes of God. And this is in the preface. The preface is worth the price of the book. And he says this, The church has surrendered its once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking and worshiping men. This she has done not deliberately, but slowly, little by little, and without her knowledge. And her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. This low view of God, entertained almost universally among Christians, is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. And since the decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on our troubles, a rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way toward curing them. Tozer goes on to say, it is impossible 
to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. If we would bring back spiritual power to our lives and to our churches, we must begin to think of God more nearly as he is. I say amen to every word of that. And one of the, one of the things that I want to focus on in my ministry and the ministry of this church is that we would have a biblical view of God, which is great. Some churches have such a wimpy view of God, it's no wonder people don't come to worship anymore, and it's no wonder the singing is lifeless. If God is not great, if God does not exist, then we need to stop this whole charade. I've heard people say, well, you know, if you kind of believe, if you have a faith, you're better off and life will be a little better. No, Paul said, if what we're believing is not true, we are of all people most to be pitied. Because what we believe is really damaging if it's not true. Right? But it is true. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and must believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. God is, and God is great. And that ought to change the way we live. There was several years ago a cleric in the Church of England who was fired from his position as a priest. He was dismissed by the bishop, and you have to do something pretty bad to be dismissed in the Church of England that tolerates a lot of things. And this is why he was dismissed. He wrote a book in which he said, I don't believe in God. There's nothing out there. Well, great. I'm glad the Church of England had a, has a conviction. Except here's the most amazing thing about the story. 65 other clerics criticized the bishop's action of firing this one guy, saying the Church of England should tolerate a wide range of views. If God is not real, we are of all people most to be pitied. But our God is great, so let's live in the light of that truth. Notice Paul's prayer also adds this. God is king. That is, he's ruler over everything. He's called king in verse 20. But he's described as king in verse 11. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom, and you are exalted as head above all. The top ruler is the king. He is the sole reigning individual. He is the sovereign. No one else is on the throne. He's above all. Verse 12 says, he is the ruler of all things. We really begin to praise God when we see the fact that God is in control. That means of the good days and the bad days, of the bright days and the dark days. He's in control of it all. I'm hoping that someday my spiritual growth will begin to approach Matthew Henry, that great, famous Bible commentator, who when he came home one day, found out that he had been robbed and wrote these words in his journal. Number one, Lord, I thank you that I've never been robbed before. Secondly, Lord, I thank you that although they took everything, it was not much. 
Thirdly, Lord, I thank you that although they took my all, they didn't take my life. And fourthly, Lord, I thank you that it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. <laughs> I could have thought of six reasons to get really ticked, you know, <laughs> instead of four reasons to give praise to the one who rules over all. David doesn't stop there. He says, when he focuses on God, he is great, he is king. And he is giving. He is generous to all people. He's worthy of all praise. He's ruler of all things. He's giving to all people. And you'll notice in David's prayer, he acknowledges this in verse 12. Wealth and honor come from you. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and to give strength to all. And later on in the text, David talks about all the things that they have are gifts from God. James 1 tells us every good and perfect gift comes from God. If there's any nobility in it, if there's any value in it, it's a gift from God by grace. And we are to remember that. And when we do think that God is great, and God is king, and God is generous, our hearts will be lifted in praise. But there's another focus you need to have that I need to have, and it's this. We need to focus on ourselves. The focus is on us. When you come to verse 14, David said, who am I? I've just seen who God is, but who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we've given you only what comes from your hand. We're aliens and strangers in your sight, as were our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. O oh Lord our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand, and it all belongs to you. What a great perspective, right? The focus on us translates like this. We are poor. We have nothing. Everything we have is a gift from God. And when we give, we only give back to God what he has blessed us with. Secondly, we're out of place. We're like strangers and aliens who wander in a place that's not like home. And we are temporary. We're like shadows. Do you know what a shadow is? If you come from Michigan, you may not, but it's where the sun comes out. <laughs> and it shines on an object and casts a dark spot on the ground or on a wall but it's soon gone. Either when the light source is gone or the object is moved. Shadows are temporary, and so are we. Even if we live to be 100 years old, we're like a, a blip that cannot even be detected on the screen in the light of eternity that never ends, right? Now compare the two. We're temporary, God is eternal, verse 10. We're out of place, God owns the universe and is at home anywhere. He doesn't even need a house to dwell in. We're poor and he's rich because he owns everything. And that's what led the people to praise. We're without provision, we're without home, we're without hope, but God has generously given to us by grace everything we possess. And so David ends with this thought in verse 18. 
O Lord God of our fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, please keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever. And please keep their hearts loyal to you. Isn't that a great prayer? It's all about the heart. Keep, keep the desire of generosity in their soul. Keep this vision of you in their heart. And Lord, keep us loyal to you in all that you tell us to do. And that's my prayer for South Church. Lord, keep in our hearts this same desire and this loyal behavior through the rest of our existence. So when you get to verse 20, David said to the people, let's praise the Lord. And that's exactly what the people did. Do you know the doxology? Sing it with me, will you? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And that deserves a good Amen. Father, we thank you for your amazing goodness to us. You are great. You are sovereign. You are generous. We are nothing. We possess nothing. We're strangers and temporary without hope. You've touched us by your grace. And now, Lord, help us to go from this place to accomplish your purpose. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we're going to dismiss right now. Sorry about that. We're going to cancel the last song because it's time for you to go get your kids and then time to meet on the west side for our groundbreaking. You're dismissed. <laughs>